Chapter Two of Blindfolded. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Blindfolded by Earl Ashley Walcott. Chapter Two A Cry for Help. I hastily closed and locked the door. It shut out at least the eyes and ears that, to my excited imagination, lurked in the dark corners and half-hidden doorways of the dimly-lighted hall. And as I turned back to the room, my heart was heavy with bitter regret that I had never left my home. This was not at all what I had looked for when I started for the Golden Gate at my friend's offer of a good place and a chance to get rich. Then I rallied my spirits with something of resolution, and shamed myself with the reproach that I should fear to share any danger that Henry was ready to face. Wearied as I was with travel, I was too much excited for sleep. Reading was equally impossible. I scarcely glanced at the shelf of books that hung on the wall and turned to a study of my surroundings. The room was on the corner, as I have said, and I threw up the sash of the west window and looked out over a tangle of old buildings ramshackle sheds, and an alley that appeared to lead nowhere. A wooden shutter swung from the frame-post of the window, reaching nearly to a crazy wooden stair that led from the black depths below. There were lights here and there in the back rooms. Snatches of drunken song and rude jest came up from an unseen doggery, and vile odors came with them. Shadows seemed to move here and there among the dark places, but in the uncertain light I could not be sure whether they were men or only boxes and barrels. Some sound of a drunken quarrel drew my attention to the north window, and I looked out into the alley. The lights from Montgomery Street scarcely gave shape to the gloom below the window, but I could distinguish three or four men near the side entrance of a saloon. They appeared quiet enough. The quarrel, if any there was, must be inside the saloon. After an interval of comparative silence, the noise rose again. There were shouts and curses, sounds as of a chair broken and tables upset, and one protesting, struggling inebriate was hurled out from the front door and left, with threats and foul language, to collect himself from the pavement. This edifying incident, which was explained to me solely by sound, had scarcely come to an end when a noise of creaking boards drew my eyes to the other window. The shutter suddenly flew around, and a human figure swung in at the open casing. Astonishment at this singular proceeding did not dull the instinct of self-defense, the survey of my surroundings and the incident of the barroom row had in a measure prepared me for any desperate doings, and I had swung a chair ready to strike a blow before I had time to think. "'Shh!' came the warning whisper, and I recognized my supposed robber. It was Henry. His clothes and hair were disordered, and his face and hands were grimy with dust." "'Don't speak out loud,' he said in suppressed tones. "'Wait till I fasten this shutter. "'The other one's gone, 
but nobody can get in from that side unless they can shin up thirty feet of brick wall. "'Shall I shut the window?' I asked, thoroughly impressed by his manner. "'No, you'll make too much noise,' he said, stripping off his coat and vest. "'Here, change clothes with me. Quick! It's a case of life and death. I must be out of here in two minutes. Do as I say, now. Don't ask questions. I'll tell you about it in a day or two. No, just the coat and vest. There, give me that collar and tie. Where's your hat? The changes were completed, or rather his were, and he stood looking as much like me as could be imagined. "'Don't stir from this room till I come back,' he whispered. "'You can dress in anything of mine you like. "'I'll be in before twelve, or send a messenger if I'm not coming. "'Bye-bye.' "'He was gone before I could say a word, "'and only an occasional creaking board told me of his progress down the stairs. "'He had evidently had some practice in getting about quietly.' I could only wonder, as I closed and locked the door, whether it was the police or a private enemy that he was trying to avoid. I had small time to speculate on the possibilities, for outside the window I heard the single word, HELP! The cry was half smothered and followed by a gurgling sound and noise as of a scuffle in the alley. I rushed to the window and looked out. A band of half a dozen men was struggling and pushing away from Montgomery Street into the darker end of the alley. They were nearly under the window. "'Give it to him,' said a voice. In an instant there came a scream, so frighted with agony that it burst the bonds of gripping fingers and smothering palms that tried to close it in, and rose for the fraction of a second on the foul air of the alley. Then a light showed, and a tall, broad-shouldered figure leaped back. "'These aren't the papers,' it hissed. "'Curse on you! You've got the wrong man!' There was a moment's confusion, and the light flashed on the man who had spoken and was gone. But that flash had shown me the face of a man I could never forget, a man whose destiny was bound up for a brief period with mine, and whose wicked plans have proved the master influence of my life. It was a strong, cruel, wolfish face, the face of a man near sixty, with a fierce yellow-gray mustache and imperial, a face broad at the temples and tapering down into a firm, unyielding jaw, and marked then with all the lines of rage, hatred, and chagrin at the failure of his plans. It took not a second for me to see and hear and know all this, for the vision came and was gone in the dropping of an eyelid. And then there echoed through the alley loud cries of, Police! Murder! Help! I was conscious that there was a man running through the hall and down the rickety stairs, making the building ring to the same cries. My own feelings were those of overmastering fear for my friend, he had gone on this mysterious, dangerous errand, and I felt that it was he who had been dragged into the alley, and stabbed, perhaps to death. 
yet it seemed I could make no effort, nor rouse myself from the stupor of terror into which I was thrown by the scene I had witnessed. It was thus with a feeling of surprise that I found myself in the street, and came to know that the cries for help had come from me, and that I was the man who had run through the hall and down the stairs shouting for the police. Singularly enough, there was no crowd to be seen, and no excitement anywhere. Someone was playing a wheezy melodeon in the saloon, and men were singing a drunken song. The alley was dark, and I could see no one in its depths. The house through which I had flown, shouting, was now silent, and if anyone on the street had heard me, he had hurried on and closed his ears, lest evil befall him. Fortunately, the policeman on the beat was at hand, and I hailed him excitedly. "'Only rolling a drunk,' he said lightly, as I told of what I had seen. "'No, it's worse than that,' I insisted. "'There was murder done, and I'm afraid it's my friend.' He listened more attentively as I told him how Henry had left the house just before the cry for help had risen. The policeman took me by the shoulders, turned me to the gaslight, and looked in my face. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said. "'I see you're not one of that kind. Some of em learns it from the blitherin' Chinamen.' I was mystified at the moment, but I found later that he suspected me of having had an opium dream. The house, I learned, was frequented by the opium fiends, as they figure in police slang. "'It's a nasty place,' he continued. "'It's lucky I've got a light.' He brought up a dark lantern from his overcoat pocket, and stood in the shelter of the building as he lighted it. "'There's not many as carries em, he continued. "'But they're mighty handy at times.' We made our way to the point beneath the window where the men had stood. There was nothing to be seen, no sign of struggle, no shred of torn clothing, no drop of blood. Body, traces and all, had disappeared. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline